Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke 23 uh, on page 830. The crucifixion of Jesus, the, the Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, on the cross, dying in our place for our sin. This is a, this is a heavy passage. It's a heavy topic. It's going to be a heavy sermon. Right? The, the gospel is good news. It's glorious news. It's beautiful news. It's, it's a, a, a balm, a, a comfort for our souls. But that good news and that glorious news and that comforting news is born out of events that are dark and unpleasant and unsettling. And God did it that way on purpose, right? right? The God, God chose to save sinners. This glorious message, this glorious news of salvation for sinners was born out of this terrible, awful news of God the Son dying on the cross. God did it that way on purpose because the, the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. Salvation is only as glorious as judgment is terrible, right? Uh, the, the new life that we have in Christ is only as good as the death of Christ on the cross was bad. So passages like this and sermons like this are, are heavy, they're, they're sad, but they're, they're necessary so that we can remember the suffering and death of Jesus um, that he did in order to secure our salvation uh, and, and to save us from our sin. So, Let's read Luke 23, verses 32 to 38, and then spend some time considering it. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, if he's the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And there was an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we pray for these next few minutes, Lord. We pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would work through the, the preaching and the reading and the hearing of your word, Lord. This is not a, a fun text. This is not a happy uh, text to meditate on. It's a sad text. This doesn't make us smile. It makes us grieve. And yet, Lord... Hard words make for soft hearts, and so we pray that you would use this difficult passage to soften our hearts. We pray that you would use it to challenge us and convict us and form us, and ultimately, Lord, to assure us and to, to uh, help us to take solace and take comfort in the death of Christ for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so by this point, Jesus has been betrayed by his disciple in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been arrested, hauled off into a trial in the middle of the night. He's been denied by his closest, by Peter, his right-hand man. He's been mocked and beaten. He's been uh, tried by the religious leaders of Israel. He's been tried by uh, the, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. He's been tried by the, by, uh, the governor Herod. He's had a terrorist named Barabbas released in his stead. He's been sentenced to die. He's carried his cross to his crucifixion site. That's where we pick up in verse 32. There were two others who were criminals 
who were led away to be put to death with him. We're going to see these guys zoomed in in greater detail next week. But suffice it to say, for our purposes here, Jesus' uh, crucifixion, his death, takes place in between two criminals. He is numbered, according to Isaiah 53, he's numbered with the transgressors. Jesus has never committed any sin, and yet here he is, right in between, associated with, lumped in between two sinners. Everyone who passes by, everyone that sees him, considers him to be one of them. They have no reason to think that there's any difference between these two convicted sinners, thieves, and, and, and Jesus. He might as well be one of them. So there's this, there's this element to, to Christ's experience on the cross of being misunderstood, being misdiagnosed, being associated with people that he uh, has nothing to do with and being, having the, you know, being judged uh, as if he were them, as if he were guilty of the things that they did. Have you ever been wrongly accused of something or wrongly associated with someone or something, been misrepresented, had someone you know, assume that you're with them or you belong, like you, this thing, this bad thing, I'm going to kind of lump you, you know, I used to uh, work on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and after I left staff, they changed their name from Campus Crusade for Christ to Crew, um, because the word Crusade was was a, a trigger for for a lot of students on campus that they were working with. Right, this this kind of age old like religious battle, church commissions large armies with swords to go and kill infidels, and they were like, that's. You know, that's not us, we're not that, and so we don't want to be lumped in, you know, lumped in with that. We don't want people to assume that we, you know, are, are with them. Jesus was lumped in with, Jesus was kind of, everything, all of the bad connotations that, that these two criminals had, Jesus receives it and doesn't really have the opportunity to, to correct people or to, you know, correct their thinking about, about him. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite shows is, is Seinfeld. There's, a, there's an episode where um, Elaine starts dating a guy named Joel Rifkin, who I wasn't aware of this until I saw the show, but apparently Joel Rifkin is um, like one of the most famous serial killers in New York City. And so he killed dozens of people in the late 80s, early 90s. And so Elaine happens to be dating a guy. And so the whole episode is kind of poking fun at like whenever she meets someone and she introduces her boyfriend to them, she's like, oh, his name's Joel. And they'll say, Joel what? And she like doesn't want to answer. She, it's just Joel. You don't have to worry about his. And then as soon as she says her last name, she gets all of these like disappointing looks or kind of like, like, you know, or and it, the culmination is they're at a, a sporting event and it's like over the loudspeaker, they're like, Joel Rifkin, please come to the... And everyone's like got all these like disgusted looks, and he stands up, like doesn't even... And she's kind of like really... She's mortified, embarrassed to be, you know, associated with this... Not, you know, she's like, he's not him, I'm not with him, that, that guy. But yet, like, we can't stop... We always are getting disapproving glances, and people are judging us and thinking less of us because of an erroneous association with something. Um, that's what Jesus is experiencing here, right? He's, he's not uh, crucified by himself where people can kind of look at him and judge him based on what he has done. He's crucified with transgressors, with criminals. And so their uh, guilt is, is on him. It's associated with, with him. Uh, on the cross, Jesus endured all different, suffering of all different kinds. There's, there's, physical suffering that was intense and terrible. We'll look at that in greater uh, detail in just a few minutes, but there's physical suffering. There's, there's spiritual suffering of having his father turn his back on him and pour out his wrath against human sin on him. We'll consider that uh, more closely in a couple weeks. But in addition to the physical suffering and in, in addition to the spiritual suffering, this, you know, th- this idea of Social suffering is one that's easily overlooked, that Jesus suffered because everyone that he had ever known uh, was, was disapproving of him. They, they, you know, looked down on him. They rejected him. They assumed that the accusations that have been made against him are true when they were not. They count him and consider him among the, the worst of the worst worst. 
in society. And the author of Hebrews is describing Christ's experience on the cross. It says that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Not despising the physical pain, but despise, there, there's a sense in which the shame that Jesus experienced from being associated with criminals and sinners and lawbreakers and, and sin itself, that the sin of having your repu, or the, the shame of having your reputation smeared, the shame of having everyone around you think that you're guilty, the shame of having everyone think less of you, was one of the worst things that Jesus had to endure on the cross, despising its shame. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, they crucified him between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, the place where Jesus was crucified is called Golgotha, um, which is translated as the place of the skull. Historians and, and church fathers uh, posit uh, at least one of two uh, different reasons as to why it was called the, the place of the skull. The first, we have a picture of it, um, is that it literally... Uh, looks like a skull, or conceivably, right? This this is a a place that uh, some guys think might be the the place where Jesus died. It kind of fits the criteria. It's outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it's and it's on a a, a hill. It's nearby to a a rock hewn tomb. So it kind of looks like maybe this is the location where Jesus died. And if you look, you can kind of see. I don't have the little laser pointer, but these it almost looks like uh, you know. Two, it looks like a skull, right? Like two eyes and a, a nose if you kind of use your um, imagination there. And so uh, historians think that it might have been called the place of the skull because it was a place, the, the, the rock formation that the hill was on kind of has a skull-like look to it. Another reason uh, why th- scholars think it might have been called the place of the skull is because it was a, an execution site. It was a place where executions were carried out. In fact, like on top of the hill there, you can see to this day, it's a, a graveyard. And uh, in, in Jesus's time in, in the, the ancient Near East, you know, execution sites like this one um, would have, you know, people would have been killed on them fairly regularly. The bodies may or may not have been disposed of uh, responsibly or in a timely way. So uh, you could pr- prob- probably see human skulls kind of lying around on the ground, hence the name the place of the skull. So it was eerie, it was unsettling, it was associated with death, it was was associated with pain and suffering and darkness, and it's it's, uh, scary. That's where Jesus is going, to the place of the skull. Then we'll go back to the passage, and it says, and there... They crucified him. None of the gospel writers go into a ton of detail about the the actual event of the crucifixion, the act of the crucifixion. They'll they'll kind of uh, go through a number of things that Jesus said on the cross or things that maybe people around him did. We'll look at some of those in the verses that follow, but, but none of them dive into the, the actual um, act of crucifixion. They just kind of pass by it almost hurriedly. And it was probably because their hearers, the people that were reading their gospel letters in the first century, knew full well what crucifixion was, what crucifixion entailed. It was fairly common in their day. Jesus wasn't the only person to be crucified. Thousands and thousands of people were crucified. Rome did it very publicly. All right, they wanted everyone to see. They wanted everyone to, to kind of hold, they want these people to be held up as an example. This is what happens if you rebel against the Roman Empire. If you're guilty of insurgence, you will be uh, killed in a way that is very painful, very violent, very public, very humiliating. And so Luke knows that he doesn't need to give any additional details to help his readers have an accurate mental image for what happened to Jesus. He knows they would have already had one. We might not. Crucifixion dates back to well before the life of Christ, 6th century, maybe even earlier, uh, B.C. 
the Persian Empire. Um, the Rome, it really hit its stride in the Roman Empire. The Romans were, were, you know, they embraced it as a means of execution. It would start with a, a scourging, but right, being beaten, being chained to a post and being beaten. It was so intense and so violent and so painful that there are people who had been sentenced to be crucified that didn't even make it to the crucifixion site because they died from uh, blood loss or, um, uh, or just organ failure in the process of the, this pre-crucifixion scourging. Have deep lacerations, vital internal organs are exposed, they go into shock and have hallucinations. They'd carry uh, the crossbar to the site of the crucifixion which we saw last week Jesus did, and uh, he was in such a weakened state from having been scourged that he, could, he buckled under the weight of the crossbar, could not even uh, physically carry it to the site where he's going to be crucified. The crossbar would be attached to the vertical post. The person would be attached to the cross either with ropes or in Jesus' case with large nails, probably akin to railroad spikes. Victims would hang on the cross, completely exposed for hours and hours, sometimes even days. You would die, you, death by crucifixion would be any number of different, you know, it could be medic, any number of different medical phenomena, heart failure, hypovolemic shock, acidosis, pulmonary embolism, cardiac rupture, dehydration, Right, all of these would, would be candidates for the cause of death for a person who had been crucified. The most common was asphyxiation or, or suffocating. The way that you would hang on the cross you know, with your arms stretched out and your body weight pulling against it. The, chest, the muscles in your chest would expand. It would leave little room for your lungs to take in any air. It would be difficult to inhale. The only way to inhale would basically be to you know, do a, a pull-up and kind of pull yourself up and get some air into your lungs. And then as you relaxed, it would kind of force the air out of your, your lungs. And so you would, it would be this long, slow, painful, you know, it would feel like, feel like drowning essentially, but a long and slow and painful and public version of drowning. It was, it was vulgar, Right? The people that were crucified were, were the vilest of society. They would scream curses at the, the people that were there. The people that were there were enjoying it. It was you know, a similar kind of, similar kind of uh, you know, atmosphere as, as watching gladiators slaughter each other in the Colosseum. It was sickening. It was bloody. It was unsettling. So all of that, all of that mental imagery, just this gross, vile, violent, sadistic, terrible torture of another person, like all of that, all of those connotations are kind of all bundled in. They're all kind of, when, when a first century reader would see there they crucified him, that's what they would feel, that's what they would see in their mind's eye, that's what they would experience. It's just this terrible, despicable, awful punishment that was reserved for the most terrible, most despicable, most awful people that there are. It's the worst death that you could possibly experience. When Isaiah describes the death of the Messiah, he uses phrases like, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men would hide their faces. He's been, you know, beaten beyond recognition. We, we despised him. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. His soul was poured out unto death. He was pierced. He was crushed. His soul was in anguish. It's the language that Isaiah uses to describe what Jesus went through. Psalm 22, David says that he was surrounded by predators. His heart was melting in his chest. His bones were pulled out of joint. His enemies were gloating and mocking. When Paul's referring to the cross in Galatians 3, he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming 
a curse for us. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 21 and he says, Everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. So Jesus' death on the cross was a horrific event. We, we tend to avoid things that are horrific. We tend to avoid things that are unsettling. We tend to avoid things that are repulsive and, and sickening. So we tend to avoid extended consideration of the, of the cross of Christ. It makes us uncomfortable. And yet, from time to time, an extended consideration of Jesus and what he endured on the cross is necessary, right? It's, it's necessary to understand who God is. It's necessary to understand uh, us, ourselves, and our sin. It's necessary to understand the gospel. We have to consider what happened on the cross. And we have to consider why Jesus died on the cross. Right? The, the whole event of Jesus Uh, giving his life for sin, being crucified on the cross, was not arbitrary. It was not uh, random. It didn't happen for no reason. Jesus died this terrible death on the cross uh, because he had to, because it was necessary in order to accomplish and secure our salvation. Paul says in Galatians 2 that uh, if salvation could have been procured, could have been secured in any other way, then Christ died for nothing, right? The, the only, like, Jesus' death was necessary and not superfluous. It was necessary and not uh, unnecessary, specifically because it was the only way that salvation could be accomplished. So the answer to the question, right, why did Jesus have to die on the cross in snapshot form, I guess, would be... Jesus had to die on the cross because we have sinned against God, our righteous creator, and we have incited and evoked the righteous and terrible wrath of God. And that, that wrath that, that, is, that is belonging to our sin is either going to fall on us in hell or it's going to fall on Jesus on the cross. Jesus went to the cross to die as a sacrifice, as a substitute in place of sinners, to absorb the wrath and judgment of God so that sinners don't have to. So the two, yeah, the two kind of themes that are running through that answer are Jesus died on the cross, one, because God is holy. If God weren't holy, then the prospect of welcoming sinners into his presence would be of little, of little import. There would be no difficulty with it. There would be no tension about it. If God could turn a blind eye to sin, there would be no need for punishment, no need for the cross. Imagine a, imagine a, a judge who hears criminal cases for a living. It's presented with a case where maybe a friend of his or a family member of his is accused of or, or is, is shown to be undeniably guilty of this serious crime against another person. And yet that judge, by, by virtue of abusing his authority, finds that person innocent, lets him walk free because of a personal bias. Or imagine there's a judge who someone's brought before him, shown incontrovertibly to be guilty of a violent crime against someone but that judge uh, counts that person guilty because he's been bribed by, you know, a mob boss or something like that. Imagine how you'd feel about that person being, being set free with no punishment whatsoever if it was your family member that they had hurt. Or imagine how you'd feel if, if uh, after being set free, they hurt someone else who happens to be you or, or a family member because, because of this wicked, unjust, crooked judge. So when we consider why the death of Christ on the cross is necessary, that's part of it. Part of it is because God is not like that. 
God is not a wicked, unjust judge who does not take sin seriously. God is holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. Everything that he does is good. He's not wicked. And so therefore, penalty for sin must be paid. That's one reason why Jesus had to go to the cross is because God is holy. And the other reason, kind of the flip side, is that Jesus died on the cross because we are sinners. Jesus died on the cross because God is holy. Jesus died on the cross because we are sinners, right? If God is the, you know, and this idea of we being sinners is something that is just worth reflecting on for a moment. It's something that's very easily misunderstood or very easily kind of water skied over or taken Right? We assume that we understand what's, go- what's going on there. But our sin is something that we need to understand rightly and take very seriously because that's what the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is only necessary because of our sin. Our sin is not like uh, getting a parking ticket that we don't really take seriously. We don't really... You know, we kind of feel annoyed or like we're the victim because this, you know, arbitrary lame rule happens to be there that we didn't really, you know, sin, sin is not insignificant and minor like a parking ticket. Sin, sin is cosmic treason against the king of the universe, right? It's, it's, uh, sin, right? G- God himself is the creator, the king. God has unilateral rights over his creation, over his people. God is the one who says what's right and what's wrong. God is the one to whom we owe all allegiance. God's the one who says what to do and what not to do. Everything that we have belongs to God. All of our time, all of our abilities, all of our resources, they belong to God. Our emotions, our affections, our praise, our affirmation, anything that we think is is good, that all belongs to, to God because God is the king. And so sin is not this random breaking of an arbitrary law that we can just kind of sweep under the rug, not really a big deal. Sin is when a created being looks their creator in the eye and says, you're not the king of, you're not the boss of me. You're not the king of my life. I am my own king. I don't want to submit to you. I want to do what I want. I don't owe you anything. I, everything that I am and everything that I have, it's, it's mine. You don't get to tell me what I'm going to do with it. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm not going to acknowledge your authority. You are not the king. I am the king. The death of Christ on the cross is necessary because God is holy. He is unimaginably holy. He is far more holy than you could ever imagine or conceive of. And the death of Christ on the cross is necessary because of our sin, which is worse. It's more terrible, more egregious, and more deserving of punishment and wrath than we give it credit for or than we could ever imagine or conceive of. If we are sinners who've rejected God, and if God is holy and obligated to punish sin in accordance with his holiness and with its sinfulness, then the unavoidable conclusion is that God must punish us for our sin. He must cast us out of his loving presence forever. He must actively pour his wrath on us forever. And that is the fate of every single person who has ever lived. The fate, your fate, my fate, the fate of everyone that you know is, is to be cast out of God's presence and to experience God pouring his wrath out on you for your sin unless God does something to intervene. That intervention is the, the cross. It's the crucifixion of Jesus that we see in Luke 23. 
Second person of the Trinity, willingly leaving His throne in heaven, coming here, living with His people. Jesus was not a sinner like we are, but Jesus was a human like we are. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but He did not sin. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law of God. He loved God perfectly, submitted to God perfectly, obeyed God perfectly, acknowledged God as His King. Jesus was the only person in all of human history who did not deserve to die. And yet on the cross, Jesus died. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. Jesus was not being treated in accordance with his life and what he has done. He was being treated in accordance with our lives and what we have done. And so if we turn from our sin and trust in him, then the flip side is true for us, right? We can be treated not in accordance with our lives and our sin, but rather we can be treated as if we have lived the perfect life of Christ. So Jesus had to die to take our punishment for our sin so that we can be spared from the wrath and judgment of God and experience His grace and His loving presence forever and ever. When we look at verse, 20, at verse 33, Jesus crucified between two criminals, we can't rush past it. We can't assume that we've already heard it, we already know it. We, we don't need to think about it. We need, to, we need to stop and take notice of what Christ went through on the cross and why he did it to save us. And then verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So even, even in the midst of this horrific, terrible death that he's experiencing. Jesus is thinking of his people, praying for his people, praying for and thinking of the very people that are persecuting him and that are... The expectation for any normal person who's experiencing something like this would be that they are thinking entirely of themselves. They are curved in on themselves focusing on their pain, their suffering, the injustice that's being done to them. Any thoughts that they might have for other people besides themselves would be thoughts of hatred, hostility, resentment, animus, a desire for revenge. How you would expect someone to respond on the cross is exactly how most criminals responded on the cross with with shouting and cursing and, and derision. Jesus does the exact opposite. In Romans 5, Paul says, Very rarely will anyone ever die for a righteous person. Though, if the person is good enough, someone might possibly dare to die for them. His logic is, righteous person, blameless, done nothing wrong, no one's going to die for that person. Because, you know, what... If, if I meet someone who has done nothing wrong to me, I don't have any, why should I, like, live and let live. But I'm not going to give my life for a person who simply has not done anything wrong to me. But if a person's good enough, right, if, if I love them enough, if they are important enough to me, if they have treated me with enough kindness and they've engendered enough goodwill in me, maybe I might possibly dare to die them. That's kind of the, the standard how the world understands laying down your life for others. A righteous person, no one would dare to die for them. If they're good enough, then maybe someone might dare to die for them. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Giving your life, laying your life down for someone that you love, not likely, but maybe. Being killed by someone and hating them as they do it, reviling them, raging against them in hatred and hostility, that's to be expected. That's normal. But allowing yourself to be slaughtered and then while it's happening, 
willingly giving your life for them, praying for them, loving them, wanting good for them, praying that God would forgive them of that sin that they are committing against you in that moment, that is remarkable. That is unprecedented. I I don't bet a lot, but I would take this way I would I would take this wager. I would bet anything that I have on it. I bet that no one in this room has been killed by anyone else. I would take that bet. I I would I would I would bet I would bet that everyone in this room has been sinned against. We've been hurt, we've been violated, we've been mistreated, we've been made to feel angry and resentful. I am absolutely confident that that is true of every single one of us to different degrees in different, different ways. But none of us have been sinned against so grievously that it rises to the level of, of murder. And yet, that's what's happening to Jesus. He's being murdered, and he is praying for and loving and forgiving and praying for the forgiveness of the people that are murdering them. So, so the argument from greater to lesser would say, if Jesus is showing us how to respond in the midst of, as you are experiencing the worst possible sins that anyone could commit against you, And we have a template, we have an ideal that we should strive to emulate when people sin against us in any number of ways that fall short of of that. Right? If Jesus can pray for the people that are murdering him, then we can pray for the people that are slandering us. If Jesus can pray for the people that are killing him, we can pray for the people that are taking advantage of us, asserting their will over ours. Right? The people who don't thank us when we do something for them, the people who are rude to us, right? When we are sinned against all the time in any number of ways, from the smallest, slightest sin to the most severe and egregious, Jesus was sinned against in ways that are far worse, and he has shown us how to respond to to being sinned against. Our model, our template when we are sinned against is that of Christ, who prays for the people that are sinning against him, loving them, caring for them, wanting good for them, praying that they would be forgiven for their sin. It says, and they cast lots to divide his garments. This is a fairly common practice with crucifixion as well. Casting lots is like a gambling game akin to flipping a coin, drawing straws or something like that. You see it quite a bit in the Bible. They use it a lot in the Old Testament to reveal God's will. They use it in Acts chapter 1 to choose the new disciple after uh, Judas Iscariot uh, has, has killed himself. It's not something that Christians should do today, but it was done in the Bible quite a bit. But it wasn't really done. So a lot of times when they do it in the Bible, when, when people of God cast lots in the Bible, it's so that they can uh, determine the will of God. This has little to do with determining the will of God. It has everything to do with... Um, you know, adding insult to injury, right? We, we've, we've already done all, we've committed these terrible atrocities against Jesus. So now what can we do to further humiliate him, further make sport of him? Let's take the one thing, the one possession that he has left on this earth and let's gamble for it. Let's waste it. Let's discard it. Right in front of his face. Let's, let's revel in the fact that there's nothing that he can do about it. There's nothing he can do to defend himself. It's also a fulfillment, as it were, of Psalm 22. Which says that they divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. I mean, every single thing about the crucifixion of Jesus. Every single thing that happens on this day, this, this Good Friday... It's fulfilling prophecies and expectations and shadows that we see in the Old Testament, kind of proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, came to save sinners and to establish God's kingdom. In verses 35 and 36, we see these two almost identical jeers, taunts, coming from two different groups of people. The people stood by, watching the rulers People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, 
He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. So that's the religious rulers. Then we've got the soldiers also mocking him. Saying, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Again, two different... Like, a year ago, the prospect of the religious elites in Israel and the Roman soldiers agreeing on anything is next to nothing. Right? The religious rulers wouldn't be caught dead siding with a Roman guard, saying something in unison with the Roman guard. Right? Those Roman guards are... Pagans, they are idolaters, they don't worship God like we do. There's no circumstance that would ever cause us to think the same way, behave the same way, act the same way, and yet they are. It's a a case study in the, the lengths that the human heart will go. Um... When, when you hate someone or hate something, when you idolize someone or something, right? The, the lengths that you'll go, the, stu- the, the depths to which you will stoop. The religious leaders idolize their power and their position. They hate Jesus. Hatred and idolatry will drive you to sins that you thought you would never be capable of. They're both saying, save yourself. And it's, it's kind of slanted a little bit differently. The, the religious rulers say, if you are the Christ of God, the chosen one, it's very specific, and it's, very, it's kind of born out of their understanding of the Scriptures. The Christ means the Messiah, God's chosen one, the person that God w- has raised up to bring about His kingdom, to, to fulfill all of the promises from the Old Testament. So they're saying, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, if you're the Son of God, then go ahead and save, like, save yourself. Show us that you really are the Messiah by saving yourself. Their taunt is specific and biblically informed. The Roman guards, it's less so, right? They're just saying, they, they don't know who the Messiah is, what the Messiah is. They don't know, they have no category for the Son of God because they uh, believe in a pantheon of other gods. But they say, if you're the king of the Jews, right, the Jewish people of which you come, if you are their king, then save yourself. But the same heart, the same spirit, the same ethos is bleeding through either of their taunts, right? Save yourself, right? If you really are who you say you are, if you're not a fraud, if you're not a loser, then then come down off the cross, vindicate yourself, show us, prove to us that you are the guy that you say you are. In Matthew 27, these two taunts are paired with another one where the religious leaders say, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. He saved others, let him save himself. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. Which is a word-for-word quote from Psalm 22. The psalm that describes the suffering that the Messiah would endure at the hands of wicked evildoers. And so, either intentionally to be ironic or unbeknownst to them, uh, which would also be ironic, they, they are quoting, right, that they are accusing Jesus of claiming to be the Messiah, and they are literally quoting word for word texts that, that vindicate, that prove that he is the Messiah, and that prove that they are the sinners and the, the villains in this in this episode. Jesus is praying for them. They are mocking him. And of course, the, the real irony here is he saved others, let him save himself. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. Like Jesus, they're, they're saying, we don't think you can do that. We don't think that you, you are weak. You are, we have bested you. We have defeated you. We are, you cannot beat us. Jesus is God. Jesus could save himself. Jesus could have called down legions of, of angels that could have destroyed every single person there, reduced the entire city to a pile of of rubble. They would have ministered to him and attended to him and relieved him of the pain that he was experiencing. Jesus could have saved himself from the cross. The catch is, if he does, 
then satisfaction for sin would not have been made. Atonement would not have been accomplished. And the people of God, us, right, us right here in this room, would be consigned to eternity apart from God in hell. So even as he's being jeered and taunted, he perseveres and he endures. Verse 36, they they bring him sour wine in the context of that mocking and, and jeering, which was a fulfillment in and of itself of another prophecy in Psalm 69, verse 21. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him reading, this is the king of the, the Jews. John gives us a little more insight into this. Pilate himself wrote that. As he did, the religious readers were objecting. They're saying, he's not our king. right? Don't, um, don't write that he's the king of the Jews. Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, no. We're going to leave the sign up as I, as I wrote it. Right? You, may, you may have some authority. like You, you may have power over me in that I am beholden to your approval and I am going to sentence Jesus to die even though I think he's innocent, but you don't have ultimate authority over me to make me do exactly what you want to to do. So he writes, Jesus is the, the king of the Jews. Presumably in jest as well, right? Pilate, no one there thinks that Jesus is the king of the Jews. If they do, he wouldn't be dying on the cross. I want to close this morning just giving us an opportunity to think, just to to consider and think not not about this story as a historical event, something that happened 2,000 years ago that we can look back on, reflect on, meditate on, but rather to give us an opportunity to think where do we fit into this story? If you read Luke 22, Luke 23, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus... Where do, I mean, it's easy to read it and think about it you know, as, as something that happened, something we can be sad about because of what happened to Jesus at the hands of other people, but we didn't really have anything to do with it. If we're being honest, and if we're looking at our lives carefully, then we have to see ourselves in this story. We have to see sin in our lives that we need to repent of in this story. The story of the cross should not just make us sad because of what happened to Jesus. It should make us humble because of what we have done in our lives to Jesus and to the people that Jesus loves. One theologian puts it this way. We see disciples sleep and mock, but we do the same thing when we don't watch and pray, right? Like Judas, we sell Jesus out to get treasure and forbidden pleasure. Like the chief priests, we want Jesus to surrender. We want him out of our way when he doesn't fit with our agenda. Like Peter, we have misplaced fleshly confidence, and yet well, uh, in, in the moment of, of trial, we will deny the Lord when faced with uh, consequences. Like Herod, we're curious about Jesus because he's famous, but we quickly get bored with him when he's not as entertaining as we thought maybe he would be. Like Pilate, we see Christ and we think that there's nothing wrong with him, but when the world chooses to go the way of the wicked, we go right along with them. There's nothing that any of these characters do that we have not done or that we would not do if given the opportunity and if the circumstances were right. Luke 22-23 to is not uh, a, a historical narrative that we can uh, you know, give academic consideration to. It's an opportunity for introspection. It's an opportunity to examine our own souls, confess our sin, and turn to Jesus and trust in Him to save us from it. I'm going to close with a quote that makes this point better than I could. 
from one of my favorite books, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He says, More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. Whenever we turn away from Christ, we too are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace, says Hebrews 6. We sacrifice Jesus to our greed, like Judas, to our envy, like the priests, to our ambition, like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing Jesus over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his. There is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see the cross as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. I invite you guys to own your share of guilt in the cross with me together this morning so that we might enjoy the grace of God together this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us the gift of repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that you would Help us to examine our hearts and repent of pride and greed and selfishness. Help us to turn from our sin. Help us to see the sufficiency of the work of Christ on our behalf and hold fast to it and trust in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.